Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's in the Old Testament. Um, it, it, it shouldn't be too difficult to find. I won't get there right away, but I want you to have a little, little lead time to try and track that down. This series is entitled Pigs Fly, and it's all about how God turns the ridiculous into reality. That is just what he does and who he is, and in this series, we're going to talk about the four phases that God often takes people through when they have a dream in their life. Now, the idea of phases and the idea of formulas is a dangerous thing to talk about in church, because the reality is God is God, and he can do whatever he wants in your life any way he wants to. He doesn't need to take notes on Brett's sermon and say, well, I got to follow the four phases. God can do it any way he wants to. But... What you, what you find if you read scripture is, if you really pay attention, the way God does things in the Bible, there seems to be a pretty clear pattern, and it doesn't always happen this way, but a lot of times it happens this way, that there are four phases to a dream or to a vision that God gives to someone. The first of those is, is you become aware. You become aware of the dream or the vision. At some point, um, you're going to become aware of what God is putting on your heart or what God is laying before you, and usually in terms of dreams and visions, there's more than one. God usually calls us to more than one thing in our lifetime. You may have had multiple seasons in your life where God had given you different dreams and different callings or purposes. And um, you were pretty sure that as he was doing that, you knew what he wanted you to accomplish at any given time. But the first step is just becoming aware, making sure that we, we, we hear God's voice and all that. Second thing that happens is you're going to encounter opposition. Almost always, you're, when, when you're given a vision or a dream, you're going to encounter opposition. Third, you will endure difficulties. Now, <laughs> so far it makes this whole dream business not, not sound like a whole lot of fun, doesn't it? I mean, you're going to become aware, you're going to encounter opposition, and you're going to endure difficulties. Um, you might say, Brett, thanks, but no thanks, I don't really want a dream, thank you very much. The fourth thing is, you have to learn to surrender. And what you're going to see throughout this series is that over and over and over again you're going to see this pattern some seasons last a little longer than others but you almost always see these four things in the anatomy of a dream uh, of a in a person's life now we could have picked any number of people in the bible to talk about but today and throughout this series we're going to talk about someone that that you probably know about even if you aren't really a church wouldn't describe yourself as a church-going person you probably have heard of the person David, as in David and Goliath. So that's who we're going to talk about. And we're going to follow these four phases in his life. Now, I, I love David. Um, I love learning about David. I love talking about David because David was anything but perfect. And I think that that describes most of us in the room. In fact, I hope it describes all of us. In fact, if that doesn't describe you, if imperfect doesn't describe you, you're at the wrong church, okay? That's what you need to know. Um, there's probably another church that would love to have you because you're perfect, but it's, um, if you stay here, you're going to mess us up being perfect. We can't have that. So, so uh, you know, we can kind of identify with David. You know, if you have an issue or two in your life, you, David should be your guy. You know, David, David is somebody that you would maybe want to gravitate to and see what God does in his life because he sure didn't have it figured out. In his up moments, no one was better than David. In his down moments, no one was worse. Uh, as a husband, he 
lusted as a uh, father. He sometimes was weak as a uh, leader. He was a horrible decision maker at times. He was loved. He was hated. But most importantly, he was used by God. But long before David was used as the greatest leader that Israel has ever seen, he was a whole lot of absolutely nothing special. There was just nothing special about David. So we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. And we're going to spend the rest of the day in this passage, so just kind of keep a finger there. But uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Now, Saul is the first king of Israel, and from outward appearance, Saul has got his act together. He was tall. He was probably a, a head taller than just about anybody that would stand next to him. He was a good-looking guy. He, um, you know, according to Scripture, he was strong and he was a fierce warrior, things that you would want in your king. So on the outside, just looking at Saul from the outside, you would look at him and you'd say, man, that guy is impressive. I mean, he's really pretty sharp. He would look like a great king. The problem was he was a horrible leader. And he was also a bit of a nutcase, uh, to be honest with you. So, uh, and those things weren't good. God said, you know, we got to move on. We, this isn't working out. We need to find somebody different to fill this position. So he tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now this idea of fill your horn with oil, it, it just refers to the fact that somebody is about to be anointed. And, and anointing was just basically a way to choose somebody, really is what you're doing. In our culture today, we have the bachelor and they give a rose away. That's how you get chosen. So, you know, God might have said in another, in, in our culture, you know, get your roses together and I want you to go there and you're going to hand a rose to the guy that's going to be the king. I don't know. I'm just being silly. But um, so he heads off to Bethlehem and, and in verse two, we read this. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So God kind of gives him a, you know, builds in an alibi for him a little bit. And Samuel is a prophet. He's not a king. He's just a, a spokesman for God. And this is dangerous business. He's going to go anoint a king, a new king, when there is already a king on the throne. That's not generally good for your health if you're going to do something like that. Verse 3 um, you know, Samuel's a little worried, and God gives him some instructions. Verse 3, invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what, you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel, we need a new king, and I'm going to tell you who it is. It's going to come from the house of Jesse. It'll be one of his sons, and I want you to go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse. While you're there, I'm going to show you who the next king's going to be. So, Samuel shows up, Jesse has these seven sons of his all there, and, and Samuel is eyeing each one as they walk through the door, kind of trying to figure out which one is it going to be, and he's thinking to himself, it's more than likely going to be the oldest of the sons, this guy named Eliab, and he's eyeing him up and down, you know, kind of thinking to himself, yeah, he looks like pig, uh, pig material, I looked at the pig picture, <laughs> oh. he's looking at Eliab and he's thinking, well, he looks like a king. That's got to be the guy right there. That's going to be the king. And um, he's thinking to himself, he's going to pour oil all over this dude and anointing him. And, 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 you know, I know he's the one, he's the tallest, he's the oldest, he's probably the wisest. He's probably got the most battle experience or, you know, being out in the field with animals and killing things. And, and he's got to be the one. God, he's got to be the one. And then we come to one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 
1 uh, Samuel 16, verse 7. I, I love this verse. Um, this would be one, especially the second half of this. You might want to try to uh, memorize this. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now you need to memorize that passage of Scripture. God doesn't look at things the way we look at things. God doesn't see people the way we see people. Same, the Lord says, look, I don't look at you on the outside. I'm looking at you on the inside. And Samuel goes, okay, it's not Eliab. It's not the first one. Let's move on. So number two, God, how about number two? No. God said no. Well, how about number three? No. How about number four? No. Five, six, seven. No, no, no. And, you know, Samuel is starting to run out of guys, and he's probably a little embarrassed by now. And it's like, God, I thought you told me that it was going to be one of Jesse's sons. It's all the sons I'm seeing. I don't really know what you expect me to do. Verse 11, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? In other words, is this it? Is this all you got? Jesse answered, there's still the youngest. He is tending sheep. Now, the word youngest in Hebrew doesn't just speak to David's age. It also speaks to his rank. He is the lowest in rank. He is truly the least of these. So when Jesse says he is tending sheep, that is what you do when you are of the lowest rank. You get sent out to tend sheep. You know, what's your job, David? Uh, Tend sheep. Tending sheep was not a glamour job. Tending sheep was not something that when you were a little boy, you thought to yourself, man, I want to grow up one day and I want to tend sheep. I can't wait to tend sheep. No, tending sheep didn't have that kind of pizzazz to it. It didn't really carry with it the kind of significance and weight that you wanted. You you didn't look forward to telling people, yeah, I'm a shepherd, that's what I do. But it says, Samuel said, send for him. This kid that you've got out in the field tending these sheep, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Now, this is not in my notes, but I want to point this out. It's very interesting that Samuel honors David in spite of the fact that his own father did not honor him by even inviting him into the room. Uh, Jesse's got, I said Samuel, I should have said Jesse. Jesse's got eight sons, and he's been instructed to have his sons in the room and have them ready because God's going to pick a king. And he leaves David out in the field. It's, I mean, I don't, I, you know, again, he had a low rank and he was the youngest and there's probably a reason, but Samuel says, we're not going to sit down until he gets here. Nobody sit down. We're going to honor him. We're going to respect him. Uh, even though he hasn't been respected up until this point, we're not going to sit down until he gets here. So a servant runs off to get David and, and he says, David, you know, they want you. And, you know, David's like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? They want me. It's like, no, really, there's a prophet, he's at your dad's house, and, and, and he's looking for the next king, and he says it's going to be one of your dad's boys, and we've gone through all the other ones, so maybe it's you. And David is thinking to himself, right, when pigs fly, I'm going to be the next king of Israel. That's not going to happen. You've got to be kidding me. In other words, David would say, it's not me. I'm not a king. I'm out here. I'm tending sheep. I'm just watching these sheep. They didn't even invite me. And the guy says, well, okay, all I know is is they told me to go get David. That's all I know. Then you come to verse 12. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health, 
and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, this is a crazy story. We, we find David, and he truly is the least of these. He's the youngest. Um, he has the least amount of experience. He hasn't really done anything in his life other than watch sheep. And now this prophet shows up in Bethlehem and, and what's really telling is that David's own son, uh, dad, Jesse, doesn't see any potential in him. His own dad. You know, I mean, your dad should be the one person who believes in you, right? I mean, dad should be the one guy that says, that's my boy. You know, I, I just no matter what, that's my boy. I mean, I, Bennett and I had a conversation one time when we were talking about him going to school and, you know, he wanted to play music and he was showing some doubts and and I just looked at him, I said, Bennett, I believe in you. You know, I believe in you. I believe you can learn. I believe you're going to grow. I believe God's going to lead you and he's going to guide you. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, he, we were having a conversation. He looked at me, he said, Dad, you know, sometimes, um, he said, I, I, you, you've never, you've always believed in me. You've just always believed in me. Well, that's what, a, that's what we do as dads, right? We believe in our kids. You, 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 you believe in them. You pump them up and you let them know that you're there for them. So, um, but his own father doesn't invite him into the selection ceremony because he's absolutely convinced that it's going to be one of these other sons. Surely they are more qualified. Surely they are more capable than David. And he's, you know, we're just going to leave David out in the sheep pen. He's, he, he doesn't need to come in. Here's the thing. There are 66 chapters in the Bible that are dedicated to the life of David. 59 times in the New Testament alone he, he, his name is mentioned. He is going to establish and inhabit the world's most famous city. The Son of God, Jesus, will eventually come and be called the Son of David. The greatest songs and psalms that we've ever had were penned from David's pen. We will call him king. We will call him warrior. We will call him giant killer. But on this day, he's not even invited to the party. On this day, he is an afterthought. No one even considers that he might have potential to be the king. And then in steps God, and God is into the unexpected. That's what you need to know about God. That's what God is, that's who he is. He's into the unexpected. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody would have guessed it. David is a shepherd boy, for crying out loud. He's a nobody. Everything that could be wrong with David was wrong with David, except for three little words, God chose him. God chose him. And in this moment, his whole life changes. In this moment, he has this dream that one day he might be the king. Now that's David's story. Let's talk about you and me for a minute. Some of you know your dream. At least for this season of your life, you know your dream. You might wonder about the future, but right now, you have a pretty good grasp on what God is calling you to do and what God wants you to do with your life. There's a bunch of you in here that don't have a clue what God wants you to do, right? And you're struggling with, you know, I wish there was some prophet that would roll up into the middle of all my mess and get out and tell me this is exactly what God wants you to do. I wish somebody would just spell it out and say, this is what God wants me to do. That would be great, wouldn't it? And I've had friends who could point to some spiritual conversation or some experience that they've had, and all of a sudden, boom, you know, they know what they're doing, and they've got this grand vision for their life, and everything looks wonderful for them, and they never look back, and their, their whole act comes together, and it's like, you know, you're, 
scratching your head like, why didn't that happen for me? And we probably all know somebody like that, but for most of us, it just doesn't happen that way for us. For most of us, we just don't see it all at once. It might start as an inkling, and then maybe we have this cluster of interest, and then we get kind of a longing in our heart, and and it won't go away, and we kind of identify that. But how do we discover our calling? And how do we discover our dreams that are wrapped up in God and that God puts in our hearts over the life or the course of time. And we're not going to have the time to talk about all the options this morning, but I thought I might, it might be helpful for us to talk about two or three different ways you might start to become aware of the dream or the vision that God has for you or that God wants to give to you. The first thing I would say is this. If you want to kind of start the process I would recommend that you get three people that you look up to, that, you, you know, that are living their dream, that seem to know what it is that God wants them to do. Find three people and ask them to share with you why they think you were put on this earth. Sit down with three different people that you respect, that you think are living God's dream for their life, and maybe ask them, first of all, how did you find your dream? You know, what, what, how, how did it all come about for you? How did you discover your calling? How did it happen for you? And then follow that up with, as you look at my life, why do you think I was put on this earth? And if they look back at you and say, beats me, then you need to get some new friends is what you need to do, right? <laughs> Leave them alone and go get you some new friends. Um, Ask them what they think. Ask them to look at your life. Ask them to, you know, kind of be introspective with you and just say, well, I just want your help. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. I just want to hear what you have to say. Uh, secondly, if someone came along and they gave you all the money you, you have ever wanted in the world, what would you do with it? And don't tell me you would give it to the church, okay? Because I know better than that. You wouldn't give it to the church because um, if you you wouldn't do that. You know how I know that? Because a lot of you don't do that now, so if you're not doing that now, you wouldn't do that then. But, th- th- you know, that's probably your dream right there, right? That somebody would give you all the money you've ever wanted in the world. Um, if someone came along, ask yourself, if somebody came along and gave me all the money that I ever wanted, I know what I would do. I would get a, a deserted tropical island, right? And I would drink those little drinks with the umbrella in them, and I would just time the waves for the rest of my life. I wouldn't do anything. Is that what you're thinking? You wouldn't do that. You know, you know how I know? Because nobody loves the beach more than me. I love to sit and listen and close my eyes and feel the warm surf and love to hear the ocean. Are you there yet with me? Are you there? I love all that. I do. I love to get away and go to the beach and just take all that in for a while not forever. I mean, we all want to be significant, right? We all want to do something for God. We all want to dive into this pool and figure out what it is that God has given for us to be significant in. What God, what do you want for me? How do you want to use me specifically? And you know what? Sitting on a beach for a while is fine, but you're not going to find your purpose there. You're not going to be significant there. It goes deeper than that. If someone came along and gave you all the money, what would you do that had purpose and meaning? Ask yourself that question. And then thirdly, I would, I would tell you this. Start to observe your life. Start to observe your life. There are things that people over time have said, like, hey, man, you're good at that. 
You know, I, I, don't, I don't know how you do that. I could never do what you do, but you're really good at that. Um, another question to ask is, or I, I skipped a question. What have I always been good at? Second question is this. What needs do I care about the most? In other words, what fires you up? What, what gets you going? What makes you think, man, I, I've got to put all my energy into that? What is that thing that when you're laying in bed at night, you think, man, I wish I could do that? I just wish I could do that. If it hits you, you know, this bothers me. I want to see this change. Now, for some of us, you know, that's, it's, it's different for all of us. That's the reason there are so many different ministries in the world. Some have ministries to homeless people. Some have ministries to people that don't have anything to eat. Some people have ministries for, for pets and animals that get mistreated. Some people, there's all kinds of ministries. There's, there's uh, you know, there's stuff for our environment that people get involved in. And, and all those are, are great and wonderful things. What are the things that you care about? What do you see that, that w- Bill Hybels taught us this phrase a couple years ago at the Leadership Summit. What do you see that gives you a holy discontent? What is that for you? What do you see and you go, that's got to change. That's got to change. And maybe you're the only one that sees it. And you think, you know what, if I don't do something about that, that's never going to change. I've got to change it. What, what would that be for you? Another question, who do you admire the most? Who are the people that when you see them, you think to yourself, man, I just admire them. I like the way they live their life. I wish my life would count for something the way their life counts for something. Ask yourself that question. And then, what makes me feel most fulfilled? What, what are the things that when you've done them in the past, you've thought to yourself, man, that, that feels really good. Man, that, that was it right there. I love that. I, that that's what I want to do with my life. That's why... I, a lot of times when people come to me, and I'm not talking about a, you know, a deep clinical depression. I'm talking about a, a milder form of it that we all kind of go through. But when someone comes to me and says, Brett, you know, I just, I'm depressed lately, and I can't seem to kind of kick, kick it, I, I almost, almost always tell them, go do something for somebody else. Get your mind off yourself. Go do something for somebody else. You'll feel like a hero God's going to make you feel great because you did something for somebody else. It's one of the ways to kind of get over yourself and your problems and your things. Just go do something for somebody else. But rarely is there going to be a moment for us the way there was for David where it just kind of falls out of the sky or, you know, a, 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 one of those planes that writes things in the sky is not going to write for you. This is what God wants you to do. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some time. You're going to have to spend some time praying about it. You're going to have to answer some questions and spend some time with some people that know you so that you can figure out how you're wired and what you can do to use the giftedness that God has given you. It matters. It really does matter. Now, the rest of the time, I want to just make some observations about this story. Observation one, I would say this. Work diligently at what God has given you to do today. Work diligently at what God has given you to do today. It's interesting in this story, Samuel anoints David, and he says, David, you're going to be the next king. What does David do next? David does not go off to the crown shop to get his head measured for a new crown. That's not what he does. He doesn't roll up into the kingdom and walk into the palace and say, hey, Saul, just want you to know I'm coming for you. You know, I'm going to be next. Your days are numbered. Wouldn't be wise probably for David to do that, but he doesn't do that. You know what he does? He goes back to tending sheep. 
You can look it up. He has this huge dream put on his plate, and what does he do? He goes back to doing the thing that he was called to on the day that his dad said, well, he's out there tending sheep. That's exactly what he goes back to. And this is important. There are a lot of people who want to live a significant life and want to make a difference the way David did, and it's really easy to fast forward and look at David's story and say, you know, this is a man that's going to go up against a giant. This is a guy that's going to become a hero. And we think to ourselves, yeah, I want to be like David. I want to be the guy that tackled big things. But don't try to be David who tackled Goliath and defeated Goliath. Be like David who took care of sheep. Be like David who just did the next right thing. Everybody wants to have these instant David and Goliath miracles in their life, but most of the people have never taken the, the, the time and, and to try to figure out life. And basically, they think they're too good to tend sheep. They think they're too good that they need to be doing something better. Be diligent at what God has called you to do today and do it well. Listen, some of you are in jobs and you don't like your job and you think you're smarter than the job you're doing. I understand that. Um, I'm, I'm very fortunate today to be able to do what I feel like God called me to do and has gifted me to do. Um, I love what I do. I, I really don't work. I, I, every day is just a great day to be able to do what I do for God. But I've been in jobs where I've done some of the things that you've done. I know what it is to go into a factory and work from 3 to 11. I know what it is to, to be hot and sweaty. I know what it is to miss out on things with maybe your kids or with your family and, and wish that you could be there, but you can't because you've got these, these crappy hours and this crappy job and you don't like it and you, you're mad and, and your attitude's bad. And I had a job where my job was to stand. I worked at a metal office supply factory and I took um, like desk organizers. I would take them off a hook immediately after they'd been painted and they'd gone through an, an oven to be dried. And so they were hot I would take these things off the hook and I would put them on a conveyor belt. That's what I did for eight hours, one after another. Take one off the hook, put it on the conveyor belt. Boring. Thinking to myself, I'm smarter than this, right? I know what you go through. I know you do your job and you think, man, I'm smarter than this. I can do more than this. God, would you give me something better than this? I can do more than this. But you know what? Let me give you some verses, Ecclesiastes 9. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Colossians, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It doesn't matter what you're doing, do it really well. Now these verses kind of knock down this idea that we've picked up somehow in our culture and it could not be more false and it's done a tremendous amount of damage to the cause of Christ, I think, around the world. We have created this invisible wall, this, this wall that separates the sacred from the secular. You know, we, we break things down and certain things are sacred and certain things are secular. You know, our music is sacred and our music is secular and and, and certain businesses are sacred and other businesses are secular. Certain professions are sacred. Other positions are secular. There are certain dreams and certain call, callings and certain jobs, and they're sacred, 
that really matter to God that, that's, that's reserved, you know, for like pastors and missionaries and worship leaders and people who change the world in big, significant, significant eternal ways. And then there's the other side, and people live in the secular world, and they say, you know, what I do really doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter to them that they run their business as well, and it doesn't matter that they, they invent great things. It doesn't matter that they go in and they earn a wage and provide for their family and, and, and make money so that they can help other people and help the church and, and do things like that. They lose sight of that kind of stuff. This idea of the sacred and the secular has done a lot of damage because, first of all, no such wall exists. In other words, it's all God's. All this belongs to God. You don't get extra points for being a missionary or a pastor over being a waiter or a waitress. You don't get extra points for doing what I do. I think people sometimes think, man, you know, Brett's going to have it better than everybody else. No, not necessarily. I don't think God's any more impressed with me than he is with you when you do your job well. You don't get extra points for, for being something other than a worship leader or a missionary or a pastor or something that you've come to think, well, that's a sacred job. And you would say, well, Brett, wait, are you telling me that God could be just as happy with me and my life, with me being a server at a restaurant, than I could be if I was, than it, he might be if I was a pastor? That's absolutely what I'm telling you. Here's what I would tell you. Every person in here has an opportunity every single day to be a pastor. You don't have to have my title. You don't have to have my office. In fact, some of you have positions and opportunities available to you to be a pastor in ways that I could never be a pastor. Some of you have family and friends that would never talk to me knowing that I'm a pastor. But you can pastor them. You can take care of them. You can try to help them. I've met some servers who are, like in a restaurant, who are fantastic pastors. I've, I've had people wait on me at, at a restaurant, and, and by the time I left their presence, I felt like a million bucks simply by the way they treated me. And it was their attitude, and it was their work ethic, and it was the fact that they didn't just look at it as a job. They were doing everything they could to be the best waiter they could. And I've met pastors, and sometimes I've been one that probably ought to be a waiter or be a server, right? You say, well, that's probably where they ought to be. There are certain people that do things that you would think, well, that's really not a sacred job, but the way they do it, I think God just beams at the quality with which they do their work, and I think he's really, really proud of them. It isn't what you do, it's about how you do what you do that in, in that very unique and special way that only you can do it that God is concerned about because he's given you gifts and he's given you talents and he wants you to bring all that to bear. It's about how you do whatever it is that you do. Whatever your job is, whatever your calling, whatever your dream, the important thing is that you do it with an incredible love for Jesus and that you do it to serve and honor him. You should do your job the way you think Jesus would do your job. Wake up in the morning and go to work with that on your mind. I want to do this today the way I think Jesus would do it. Can I just tell you right now, Jesus would do your job with grace. Jesus would work hard. Jesus would be on time. Jesus would treat all people with respect. 
Jesus would not talk his boss down. Jesus would not put his company down. He would work hard. He would try to be helpful to the people around him. He would try to be a light in a very dark place. And listen, I know the kind of environment some of you people work in. I know. I've been there. I know how dark it is. I know the jokes they tell. I know how they look down on Christians. I know how they look down on the church. I know, how, I know the language that gets used. I know how dark it is. But God expects you to go into that place and to be a light for the kingdom. There is no secular and sacred. Go, be a pastor. Jesus would not recognize our line of sacred and secular. He, he, he would not recognize. To him, it, it all matters. To him, it's all important. You do not get more points for being a missionary. Can I just say that? You don't get more points for being a missionary over being a mom. I've heard people say, well, I'm just a mom. No, you are not just a mom. Okay? You are not just a mom. You're doing one of the most important jobs in the world. You don't get more points for being a worship leader over running a, a salon, okay? You don't. It's every bit as important. You do not have a second-class calling. You do not have a second-class dream. Some of you had dreams as kids, and when you told your parents, they killed your dream, right? You came in, Mom, I think I know what God wants me to do. What's that, honey? God wants me to open an ice cream stand. And you got the look, didn't you? And then you figured out pretty quick, oh, I, that's not good, I can't do that, I gotta come up with something different. No, 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 God, did I say ice cream stand? God wants me to be a missionary to Iceland, that's what God wants me to be. And then they love that, right? Can I just say, if God wired you up and God made you really fired up about running an ice cream stand, would you go start the coolest, best tasting, inexpensive, ice cream stand in the world and rock people's brains with the ice cream you make and serve in the name of Jesus and do it to his full glory and honor? There is no sacred and secular. There is no line. Do it in such a way that you love and serve people. Do it in such a way that it changes lives with what you do. Dallas Willard, a brilliant theologian, said, work is about the creation of value. So no matter what your job is, you have the opportunity to make a meaningful and significant impact and a contribution to the world. There are people in this world and their businesses, their business is to go around and pick up dog poop out of people's yards. Have you heard about this? They have a truck. They have a, like a, I'm sure, special kind of professional grade pooper scooper, different than mine you know, custom made with the, you know, with the neoprene grips and all, you know, the really cool ones. And they, and people contract them to come to their house and walk into their yard and pick up their dog poop. What a country we live in, right? <laughs> Can I just tell you, if that is what fires you up, if that is what you lay awake at night thinking, man, people need their poop picked up in their yards, that's what I'm going to do, then go be number one in the number two business, all right? I mean, if that's the thing that really trips your trigger, go after it. 
in the name of Jesus, for crying out loud. Whatever it is that God has fired you up to do, go do that. And you know what? God may have you in a holding pattern right now. You may be tending sheep. You may be taking things off a metal hook and burning your hand every time you put something on the table and say, man, I'm smarter than this. I'm, I'm smarter than this. I'm missing this and I'm missing that. Look, do whatever you do to the full glory of God for as long as he has you do it because you never know that God may not be watching how you take things off a metal hook to see if he can trust you with people. Do you understand that God had to make sure that David could take care of sheep before David could take care of people? And he may want to watch you in some mundane job that you think nobody sees. God sees it. And God sees how faithful you are. And he sees when you show up. And he sees when you don't feel well, but you go to work anyway. And he sees that you do the very best job you can do. If your job is to sit in a cubicle and staple papers together all day long, then be the best paper stapler the world has ever seen. If they give an award for paper stapling, strive to win that award. Show up tomorrow, be dependable, not just when people are watching, but all the time. Show up, do your job, be honest, don't bash the boss, don't bash your company, work hard for the glory of God. That's part of seeing your dreams come true. God does not let dreams come true for people who don't manage the things that he's given them to manage well to begin with. And if you would just do that, that would set you apart from 90% of the people in the world. I had somebody tell me one time, Brett, in this world, average is so bad, if you would just be a little above average, you would set yourself apart from everybody else. If I hear one more employer tell me that they can't hire people because they can't find people to pass a drug screen, I'm going to lose my mind. Show up. Be clean. Do your job. Keep your mouth shut and work hard and honor God in the process. All right, I'm getting way too worked up. <laughs> chill, chill. It's not hard. Be diligent. Be diligent. Number two, relax. <laughs> relax. God is behind the scenes working. Great verse, we all know it, Romans 8. And we know that all things work, God works for the good to those who love him and those who've been called according to his purpose. God is behind the scenes doing things. We see it in David's life, right? Stuff was going on behind the scenes. David has no clue what God is up to. Samuel and God are having conversations about David. David has no idea that those conversations are going on. There was a time before the giant, David had fought a lion. There was another time he fought a bear. He had no idea that God was giving him those opportunities to prepare him for something better. Because years later, David is going to go into battle and he's going to need the courage that he got from taking on a lion and taking on a bear. God was working behind the scenes. When David is a shepherd, he's learning how to play a harp and he's learning how to sing and he's learning how to write these psalms. And all that would be used in David's life. God was going to set David up. And you need to know that God is work in your life behind the scenes. And it may not feel like it. And you may feel like you're out in the middle of nowhere. But dreams are never going to happen unless you realize God is behind the scenes at work. And it may be a week. It may be a month. 
It may be years from now. But trust me, God is at work behind the scenes in your life to do something that only you can do. Here's the third thing you need to know. You're qualified. You need to know that you're qualified. You aren't perfect. You're far from perfect, but you're qualified. God has always used imperfect people to do his perfect will. God has always used ordinary, broken people to do extraordinary, amazing things. You might be like David, and your own dad or your own mom don't see it, and they didn't believe in you. They can't see the potential. Maybe your whole life people have told you, you are not qualified for that. You are qualified. We live in a world that is cynical. It's negative. And times, at times it's downright mean. Let me just tell you about this, about criticism, and trust me, I know about this. Criticism is usually nothing more than a cowardly form of self-praise. Push through it. Get past it. Ignore the criticism. Work hard. When I, um, I want to tell you this story and then I'll close. When I was uh, in May of 2000, I was approached by the elders to be the pastor at this church and, and uh, I didn't, hadn't wanted this job. In fact, Bill Grandy used to walk past my office and I would see him and I was the youth pastor and I would see him walk by and I would think to myself, I'm really glad I don't have his job. <laughs> and now I'm the pastor of the church and Ryan walks past my office and I say, I'm really glad I don't have his job. <laughs> um, but in 2000, in May of 2000, the elders came to me and asked me to, to, to consider being the pastor of the church. And, and um, when I took over, there was someone close to me, someone that I had looked up to. Uh, when they found out I was going to be the pastor, they came to me privately. No one was around. And they looked me in the eye and they said, they have made a huge, huge mistake hiring you. Um, you do not know what you're doing. You, 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 you need a lot of work in terms of speaking. You're not ready for that. Um, you're just not ready. Your work ethic is not what it needs to be to be a pastor. I, I was crushed. I mean, I, I, um, I hadn't asked for this job. I had been asked to step in. I was afraid. I was unsure. And his words crushed me that day. I mean, it was just like, woohoo, great. Now, not everything that that guy said on that day was untrue. I was untested, and I wasn't a very good speaker, and, and I didn't have any experience. And, and I, there was a lot about this job that I didn't know about. But I knew God was calling me to it. And that began a phase in my life of God calling me to things that I was just simply not qualified to do. Do you know what qualified me for it? My willingness to do it. It's an adage that is an old cliche, and I, I realize that, but it doesn't make it untrue. God is not interested in your ability. God is interested in your availability. What God calls you to do, he will equip you for. Look at me. You have my permission to dream a big dream for God. You don't need my permission. You have God's permission. You have permission to dream. You have permission to love, to believe that the best is yet to come in your life. You have permission 
to be great for God and to do something amazing because pigs just might fly. Let's pray together. God, everybody in this room has something that you specifically have designed them to do. We believe that. There is something that you want to do in each of us that is significant, significant for other people, significant for you, significant for the kingdom. And Father, in these moments, as we sit here, all of us imperfect, all of us with a past, all of us with junk, all of us with stuff we, we, we don't want to talk about, our ability is not what you're after. You're after our availability, and you just want to hear us say yes. So God, this morning, I just pray a prayer over every person in this room that when they go to work, the next time they go to work, their boss gets a different person. Their boss sees someone with a different attitude. Their coworkers see someone who works differently because they are marked by the Savior and they have been crucified with Christ. So Father, in these moments, we just ask you to make us better workers. Help us to be diligent. Help us to ever seek that place, that point, that thing that you want us to do. And when we see it, to have the courage to step into it. And Lord, we're going to be in over our head. I am over my head every day of my life. And that's where you come in. And our weakness, your power is perfected in our weakness. And Father, we're so thankful. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.